the second reading is from Colossians, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Um, as many of you may know, I've recently moved with my family across the street into our new home, about 160 seconds away from the Greenwoods place. Haven't seen much of my neighbors, but I have seen a lot of pigeons, which is quite interesting. As I was writing this sermon uh, yesterday, a lot of pigeons just watching me from the window. So, I don't know, might mean something. Um, let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for this series as we get to explore the many splendor of the cross and the many splendors of Jesus. And we, we ask that as we now look at Christ the victor, that you change us, that, you, um, that your word speaks to us and you conform us into the image of Jesus. And as the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth, may they be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are at the end of the cross, of our series on the cross of Christ. And I must say, it's been quite a journey for us. We've seen through the last five weeks or so, how Jesus is a many splendid person and the cross as a many splendid thing. Today we look at a particular splendor of the cross that takes us onto the front lines of a battlefield. But this isn't your typical battlefield with weapons and soldiers. This is a battlefield that is fought in the spiritual realm. It is a battle that's fought by Christians like us, and it is led by our captain and our commander, Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross is likened to an epic battle of cosmic proportion. On the cross, Jesus fought face on the evil forces in creation. Now, the fancy term that is used to describe this battle, as I mentioned, is Christ the victor. And this concept of Jesus as a warrior and a soldier can actually be quite foreign and quite provocative for many of us. Most of us probably never ever fought in a war. If you did, I would like to know that. And we certainly do not live in a violent society as a, as a whole. 
However, the first thing to say is that this battle is not fought, um, that is fought by Jesus, isn't fought in the physical realm, but it is fought in the spiritual realm. It isn't a battle against the human forces of the world, but it is a battle against three spiritual enemies, namely Satan and his demonic forces, death, and thirdly, sin. So first, let's look at Satan and his demonic forces. I'm going to take this mic out. It's just a bit weird having this thing in front of me. So number one, Satan and his demonic forces. Now, this can be quite a controversial topic, especially for us living in the West. Some of you might be thinking, oh, come on, Wayne, you know, what are you? Are you from the Dark Ages or something? And the fact is that we do live in a world that prizes scientific explanation, rational thought, and it leaves us very little room to talk about demonic, sp spiritual, supernatural forces. And unless, like me, you have cats that are always demon-possessed at midnight, talking about spiritual forces is often frowned upon in polite society. Yet at the same time, there is also this obsession with the supernatural realm that pervades our pop culture. You know, think about shows like Harry Potter, The Exorcist. In fact, one of Pete's favorite TV shows is a show called Grimm which in a nutshell is really about hipster monsters living in Portland, Oregon. Then there are other spiritual activities that people participate in, like palm reading, fortune telling, Ouija boards. This cultural obsession with the supernatural reflects the deeper curiosity in us. The question of whether is there really a supernatural realm that is unseen to the naked eye. And I believe the strongest argument for believing in spiritual demonic forces is simply that because Jesus himself believed in the spiritual realm. In fact, he confronted spiritual demonic forces. As we've heard from our first reading in Luke 8, Jesus meets a demon-possessed man by the name of Legion. Legion because many demons had entered this man and possessed him. In verse 29, it says, Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Interestingly, we see similar demonic encounters like this in Mark and Matthew's gospel, emphasizing the significance of these spiritual encounters. And one of the things that we do note and, and realize about demonic forces is that they always work under the cover of darkness and secrecy, like the man who was possessed that hid himself in the tomb, in the cave, in solitary places. You see, the whole premise of the supernatural realm is that you are never quite sure of their identity. They are a shadow in the dark and often unpredictable. About 10 years ago, when I was a young man, well, not much that younger, and I was conscripted into military service in Singapore. Um, we were preparing to go for a week-long combat exercise in the jungle. On the night before we were being deployed, usually what, um, what they would do is they would give you a pre-exercise briefing. It's almost like a, just a very over-glorified lecture. Um, and on, the, on that night, 
at that briefing, we were briefed by our commanding officer regarding regulations for the exercise. And I kid you not, one of the regulations that the officer gave to us was this, that when you are out in the field in the jungle, and obviously at night, when you need to relieve yourself, what do you do? You go to a bush, you go to a tree, you relieve yourself, and immediately you need to actually apologize to that tree and say sorry for peeing on that tree. Now that's all, that's silly and that's ridiculous, but let me explain the reason behind it. You see, in Eastern superstition, or at least from where I'm from, there's a belief that if you relieve yourself on a bush and a tree, you may actually be disrespecting the spirit that's actually attached to the tree, or there may actually be a dead body that is actually resting beneath the tree. So just to be on the safe side, just to cover yourself, best to apologize to whatever was out there in the ground. Now, of course, that's all quite ridiculous, but it showed me that there is an immense fear of the spiritual realm because it is unknown and unpredictable. However, Jesus, by his death on the cross, exposes the identity of these demonic forces. You see, our second reading from Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 shows that Jesus made a pu public spectacle of them. No longer can the spiritual, spiritually evil hide their deeds because Jesus has exposed them. And that all evil-spirited activity is led by the prince of darkness himself, Satan. Satan is like the mob ring leader of the pack. He's like the godfather of every demonic force. And he's asking for more than just a favor from them. The Bible tells us that we should be aware of this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, we may not know of every detail of Satan's plan, but we are definitely aware of Satan's schemes against us. The second enemy, and point number two, is sin. Uh, one of my own favorite TV shows is a HBO series called Band of Brothers. I'm sure many of you have watched that show. It's a great show. In fact, I love it so much, I still watch reruns of it today, and my and she just keeps, you know, oh, why do we, you know, another war show. Um, well, it's a show that's set in World War II, and it's a show that's based on real-life characters and events from the 101st Airborne Division. Their mission was to fly behind Nazi enemy lines, parachute, it, parachute in and form an offensive force to fight their way into Germany. The 101st Airborne Company was made famous in history, not only because of their contribution towards the Battle Day of Normandy on D-Day, but also because they were part of a liberation of a Nazi concentration camp in Kaufring, Germany. These concentration camps held Jewish prisoners against their own will, tortured, starved, and treated like stock animals. And as you know from modern history, the horrible treatment of Jewish prisoners led them undernourished, weak, unable to carry out tough labor that they were forced into, and of course, many died. In some sense, you could say that these prisoners of war were already dead, unable to fend for themselves and incapable of fighting those that held them captive, captive against their own will. One American soldier at the camp that liberated the camp said this, some walked around like zombies, some were so feeble they couldn't even stand. 
And this mirrors a great biblical truth about the state of humanity. That is, we are held captives and prisoners of sin. We were once powerless against sin, so much so that Paul says that we were dead in our own sin. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Humanity by nature is so trapped in sin that there is no way we could have escaped. Absolutely no amount of willpower or personal self-help could get you out of sin. In fact, so much so, it's as if we were already dead. And this is so counter to what the world has to, wants to say about us. You hear it commonly said in pop culture that there is good in each and every one of us. Just believe in yourself and you can do anything. Just be yourself and you'll be able to do good. Just be and believe in yourself. You are beautiful no matter what they say. But is that really true? The truth is sometimes in life, we do face obstacles when we feel there is no solution to. Maybe it's a physical illness or a financial difficulty. Maybe you've ran into trouble with the law or you're un unable to quit an addiction or perhaps you're unable to flee the temptations of sexual sin. Maybe you feel that you're actually really a person that's torn in two. On the one hand, there's a part of you that wants to reject sin. But then on the other half, the other half of you says, no, let's give in to our desires. This is how the Apostle Paul describes himself in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, when he says, I do not understand what I do. For I, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You see, we are the walking dead, alive in the flesh, but dead and hollow inside, with no power to bring ourselves to life. Thirdly, the third enemy is death. Not only is there the spiritual death, but ultimately also the physical death. In the end, death comes around at the end of our lives, comes knocking at our doors and says, time is up. Death comes to us all no matter how much we try to fight the good fight. It is a topic that we naturally shy away from. It doesn't make for a great conversation starter. And very often the topic of death gets glazed over, gets sugar-coated as if it was just another thing in life. If you've been to funerals of people that you once knew, people always like to reminisce about the good and high points in the life of the deceased. Yet ironically, hardly anyone stops to think about the significance of death. Have you ever had this feeling? Have you ever been to a funeral of someone you knew? Standing in front of the casket, looking at that body in front of you of that someone that you once knew, asking yourself this question. Is this all there is to life? What is this? Isn't there anything more than just this? Being cold and lifeless in the casket. Have you ever felt that way? Oh, Jesus did. In fact, Jesus himself mourned when his own beloved friends died. We see this in John chapter 11. Jesus hears of the death of one of his old friends, Lazarus. And as he sees Lazarus' sisters 
and friends weeping, he himself, we read, becomes deeply troubled. Jesus becomes deeply troubled in the spirit. He agonizes and he becomes frustrated by Lazarus' death. And in verse 35, Jesus begins to weep. Jesus feels the pain and sorrow of death. He shares in that anguish and pain with us. Jesus, God made flesh come down from his throne above, not to dictate or to seek righteous vengeance, but to share in our lives, to share in our meals, to share in our joys, in our struggles, and in our grief. And ultimately to bring the fight against Satan, sin, and death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes a blow from Satan when he is betrayed by Judas for a bag of gold. On the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might be righteous. On the cross, Jesus dies his physical death, alienating him from the Father as he cried out, Abba, Father, why have you forsaken me? But then death could not hold him down. As his body lay there lifeless in the tomb, God reaches in and raises Jesus up from death. Jesus breaks free from the shackles of death in his resurrection. Acts chapter 2 verse 24 says this, But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Isn't that amazing? Impossible, impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death has, has no power over Jesus. The penalty of our sin is paid on the cross with Jesus' blood. Jesus dies and goes into Hades, Hades being the realm of the dead, but God pulls him out from there because there is no way that death could keep its grip and bondage on Jesus. That is how powerful Jesus is. And more than that, Jesus shares in that victory over death with us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 says this, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shed the same thing, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For the spiritual battles, we were unable to fight because we were dead in sin. Jesus takes them on and fights the powers of sin and rescues us with his victory. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called grace. Grace that the battle against sin is won not based on our merits, but Jesus's. Not what I have done, but what Jesus has accomplished. Uh, some of you know that I play for sports competitive badminton. And for some reason, for my whole life, I could never really get into team sports. I don't know why, it's just, maybe it's just my personality. And I reckon that one of the things I actually found really interesting about people, in my observations about people who, are, who follow team sports, like soccer and footy, is that um, fans usually like to label themselves with the team. So you hear this, you know, you hear Tim speak like this, like he'll say, you know, oh, we won the match last night, we, we lost the match last night, we weren't doing too well this season. Right? People like to label themselves with the team they support. 
And it baffles me why fans would do that. Why? Why would you say that? What, have you, did you actually play in the match? Did you actually contribute? Other than, than cheering from the sideline or patronizing the merchandisers, do you, did you contribute to anything with the way the team is supporting? And I think the reason why people do that, why people label themselves with the team, is because they feel a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of identity, unity, and belonging with the teams that they support. For example, the UK soccer club, Liverpool, right? They have on their club's anthem and on their club's logo um, this, this slogan, you will never walk alone. I mean, it makes a great insurance ad, right? But it's interesting that it's actually a soccer club slogan. You will never walk alone. Through the rain and the sunshine, you will never walk alone. There is that deep connection that fans have with the teams that they love. Their joy becomes theirs, and their victory also becomes theirs. Just like a football team, Jesus wins the match for us. He has the rightful victory, but by his grace, he extends that victory out to us so that those of us who abide in Jesus can say, we have the victory against sin and death. Well, so what happens after the battle? What happens after the war? That's, what does it mean for our lives now? How does Jesus' victory on the cross shape the way that we live? Well, again, there are three points to this. Number one, Jesus' victory on the cross changes our identity from prisoners of sin to children of God. We've seen from our first Bible reading that the defeated powers of evil have been disarmed by Jesus. Like a defeated and captured enemy of war, sin, the death, and the devil are stripped of their powers and weapons. So because of that, evil now has no claim over us. And so God adopts us as families to be his sons and daughters. And no power in all creation can separate us from the love of God the Father. Number two, it gives us confidence in mission. Because of Jesus' victory, having put the evil powers at bay, it gives us confidence to go out into the world to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. When we feel like the world is against us, or when we are persecuted for believing in the gospel, we have confidence knowing that Jesus has won the war. Jesus remains triumphant in the face of worldly opposition. We see that in the book of Acts, how the early Christians faced oppression and rejection from the world that they were in. But despite all that, we see the gospel spreading like wildfire across the Roman Empire, showing us that God's mission cannot be hindered. And this explains why missionaries over the ages have gone to the far reach, the far ends of the world, have put their own lives at risk, have given their own lives to bring the Gospels to the ends of the earth. And number three, Jesus' victory on the cross gives us peace and assurance for the future. 
Sometimes as Christians, we make the grave mistake of thinking that since, since because Jesus is victorious already, it means, it means that we now live lives that are comfortable and trouble-free. Ask the average person and they will probably tell you that believing in Jesus means living a comfortable and happy life. But nothing can be further from the, from the truth. It isn't hard to labor on this point because I know that all of us in some way have faced difficulties, trials and hardships one way or another. So why do we still suffer today? Hasn't the powers of Jesus already liberated us from all grief and sorrow? Some of you may remember I spoke a couple of weeks ago about my aunt. Uh, my aunt grew up in a Catholic home. She had a successful career throughout her life. Um, there were also a few struggles, which included a three-year marriage that ended in divorce. About 10 years ago, she was invited by a friend of hers to, to, ch to a church. And that church, she met the real Jesus for the real, for the first time. She found the love of Jesus and she gave her life to him and she became a completely different person after that. Now, one would be forgiven to think that her life eventually became great and she would live a long and happy life. However, in 2010, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was given only a year left to live. Towards the end of her life, the pain from the cancer was so excruciating that she would lay awake at night. Whimpering in pain, she would yell out to Jesus to save her. The whole family, including her, ch her church family, pastors all gathered around her day and night to pray for healing. Of course, the cancer was never cured. But in the midst of her suffering, I could see in her eyes the peace that she had, that while her, her body failed and betrayed her, she was certain of the, her eternal future and promise of life after death in Jesus. See, the thing is, even as the ultimate victory against sin and death has already been won, we still face the tension of living in a fallen world. But these are only things that are temporal and they do not diminish our eternal hope. We rest in peace and certainty of a future final victory that Jesus will bring to this earth. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Isn't that amazing? Take heart. I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That glory that will be revealed is the future of a new heavens and a new earth that He, Jesus, is creating and He is sharing with us. One day, Jesus will return coming from the clouds of heaven. He will raise up the dead from the ground and every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To those of us who live as His disciples in this, this age, he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus will give us new clothes, new bodies of glory that can never be shamed. There will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, for the final battle has been won. 
we will rise again from the ashes and the grave and reign with him in victory. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus invites us to join in on his victory and to anticipate this future where the devil, sin, and death will cease to exist and be no more. And even as we wait for that final victorious day, as we shout to the heavens, come Lord Jesus, we will never walk alone.